It is a fascinating book, and yet a lot of people have told me they have never actually heard it taught. Uh, they've certainly never walked through it. We're kind of going verse by verse and every, looking at every passage, and yet uh, you're going to find that some of life's most important questions are asked by in this book. Like, for instance, is life even worth living? And can you even possibly find purpose and joy in this life? These are the questions that Solomon asks and answers as he goes through the book of Ecclesiastes. It really is like a masterpiece for the ages. Solomon wrote this book about 931 B.C., so about 3,000 years ago. He penned these words at the end of his life. And really, it's a testimony of God's grace in his life, because even though he had been given every bit of wisdom that God could give an individual, he walked away from God, and it all got started with his multiple marriages, and these wives led his heart far astray. He got involved in things that he should never have, and yet at the end of his life, you see this coming back to God, and you have it recorded here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, this book really is like a treatise for the nations, a treatise for the ages. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you'll remember that Moses said that there is to be a testimony to the world of a God who can rescue such a people that is as helpless as Israel, give them such wealth and great wisdom. And as a testimony to God, there is to be this declaration of who he is. The book of Ecclesiastes is that declaration to the world. If you want to find meaning in life, this book tells you where it's found. Now, uh, this book, what it does, just to review, systematically chronicles Solomon's journey as he goes and tries to find meaning and purpose in life apart from God. And he goes through all the human attempts that are still very viable today. And what he found is that the, the, the idols of this world are counterfeits, and he explored them all. He did intellectualism, careerism, where your job is everything about your life, materialism, uh, hedonism, just giving yourself to pleasure. He explored these to the fullest. He wrote of his experiences, and he recorded, it is vanity of vanities. These idols of the world are going to leave you spiritually bankrupt. There is no meaning, there is no purpose in life apart from God. And so what he's doing is he's showing that these ideals of the world leave you empty. And just like an empty cup kind of just beckons to be filled, or a vacant room just invites you to step in, what God does through this book of Ecclesiastes and the experiences of life are to bring you to a point where your soul is parched, where you are desperately desiring to be satisfied and God alone can do it. And that's what this book shows us. When you get to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is the grand conclusion. This is the bottom line. How do you find lasting joy and purpose in this life? If that is your question, you want joy, you want purpose, then you're going to want to pay close attention to what he says in chapter 12. And it all begins, chapter 12, verse 1, is that we need to remember God for a lifetime. Let me give you just a little bit of context, just back up a couple of verses. You want to see that at the end of chapter 11, he's pointing out that God wants his people to experience joy. In fact, 
Every person is designed and desires to experience joy in life. Look what he says, 11.8. He says, Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them, what? All. Not just a few. God actually wants you to rejoice in all of your years. Or look at 11.9, excuse me. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. He wants you to experience joy. He wants you to enjoy your life. But that cannot ever take place apart from God. That's why he says, Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. In order to really enjoy life, you've got to learn how to remember God. And this isn't just some sort of like cognizant, well, yeah, I thought of God. Um, it's not an acknowledgement that God exists. Most people believe that God exists. It's far more than that. To remember has the idea that there is a commitment to love, to serve, to fear, to obey God. It's more than just an acknowledgement. It's really, and it translates into action in your life. That is why he says, remember your creator. You see, you want to get to a place where you're relating all of life to God. It is the God-centered approach to life. And the creator has given everything to us. Think of it. He's given us all things seen and unseen. He is the one who has blessed us with wisdom, with his creation, with friends, with family. Everything that you observe God has given. And you cannot enjoy this life apart from him. If you need a Bible verse for that, Ecclesiastes 2.25, he stated it very clearly and he said, For who can eat and who can have enjoyment apart from him? You might find some temporary happiness, but it is fleeting and it ends up being like this didn't really mean much. If you want true joy... It's found in relationship with him. That's why he says, if you really want joy and purpose, you want to remember your creator. And he says, notice, you want to do this early, in the days of your youth. You see, in our fallen condition, we don't seek after God. We don't remember him. I mean, think of it this morning. When you woke up, was your first thought, whoa, remember God? Probably not. It was like, man, my back hurts. I did too much yard work. I've got this problem. What am I supposed to do today? How am I going to deal with this difficulty? You see, in our fallen condition, we don't think about God. That's why he says you want to develop patterns of remembering God in your life. And you want to get started when you are young. When you're young, you're a teenager, going into your 20s, you're starting to make some of the most important decisions of your life. Like what your calling is, what your values are, what your foundation is going to be, what you're going to do in terms of vocation and your ministry. If God's called you to marriage, who are you going to marry? Do you really want to make all those decisions apart from God? You think you've got it better figured out than he does? Absolutely not. That is why he says, remember God. And you want to get started when you're early. And there are such blessings to do so. I mean, God is going to cultivate in your life a depth and a maturity a richness of relationship with him. Your relationships are going to go beyond the superficial. If you want to end up as an old person that never really has any deep relationships, you're just super shallow, 
Well, then just avoid remembering God. Go back to your fallen condition. But if you want depth and meaning, purpose, joy, you want to learn how to remember God early on in life. It's going to spare you from a lot of regrets in life. Some people that have got a lot of deep regrets in life, they do so because they did not remember God. And I'll tell you the very best reason to remember God is because he remembers you. I mean, think of it. Do you know that he knew you in eternity past, before the foundation of the world? You were known. When Jesus lived his perfect life, when he goes and and becomes the sacrifice for sin, when he dies, he's remembering you. When he is resurrected from the grave, when he is ascending into heaven, He's remembering you. Did you know this? I was thinking about this this morning. That Jesus himself is praying for you. Hebrews 7.25. He always lives to make intercession for you. He is always remembering you. As the omniscient God, he can remember all of his people. The reason we want to remember God, our creator, is because he remembers us. He wants to cultivate in us this rich, deep relationship. He doesn't want the superficial bit. He wants us to enjoy him. And you want to get to learn how to do this when you're young, because I got news for you. You're getting older. And life is going to get harder. And this body right now, you might mean, you know, I'm 20 years old and I'm strapping strong and then I'm invincible. I want you to know the aging process is going to take over. And that's what he says. He says, you want to get started early. Develop this foundation when you're young because the day is going to draw near where you're going to say, man, I don't have any delight in them. Your body is going to feel miserable. It's going to be a great effort just to get out of bed. He refers to it as the evil days. And so what Solomon is going to do in a very poetic fashion, he is going to talk about what it looks like to get older and why it's so important to remember God when you're young. He gives this poetic picture and this imagery. And so he gets started in verse 2. He says, you want to do this, remembering God when you're young? You want to do it before verse 2, the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened. And the clouds return after the rain. You know, there are a lot of folks that are elderly and life is very gloomy. It's just like a cloud. Do you know why life is so heavy? Because they didn't do 12-1. They didn't develop that rich relationship of knowing that the Lord is with them. He never forsakes them. You, you want to cultivate this rich relationship with the Lord while you're young. Or look what he says in verse 3, and he starts to talk about a body breaking down in in a very poetic way. He says, verse 3, in the day that the watchman of the house trembled. And here he's kind of speaking to the fact that your your body and like your hands shake and they tremble. And then he says, and mighty men stoop. Okay? It's talking about like your shoulders and your legs and your back. I mean, You don't want to have to walk around like this, but body is breaking down, gravity is taking over, and life is difficult. He says, you want to remember God before your body becomes one of your biggest trials. He says, it's coming. And then he says, look at this, verse 3, and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. What do you think that means, refers to? Grinding ones? Few? All the smart people who are at first service? Come on, what is that? It's your teeth, right? You know, one day, you're going to bite into a steak, and some of your teeth are going to stay. Do you know that? That's going to happen. 
you, you live long enough and all of your meals are going to come from a blender, okay? It's happened. And he's talking about this. He says, life has a way of taking over and you're going to age. And he says, furthermore, and those who look through the windows grow dim. What do you think he's referring to there? Your eyes. You know, like presbyopia, it, it starts kind of like at age 40. And you know, there were no glasses in those days. In fact, till Benjamin Franklin figured it out, what happened is you had a lot of people and life was just really blurry. They just really couldn't see and they're just walking into things in each other because they couldn't see. And our friends, it's the effect of aging. And it happens. And furthermore, he just kind of keeps going here. Verse 4, And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. Your ears, they just can't hear as they once did. Things are difficult. You've got this loss of hearing and and look at this. And one will arise at the sound of the bird. You're going to find that your ability to sleep in like a teenager till like noon is over. I mean, you're up with the chickens. You might even beat them. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning. Like, I think I'll get started with my day. Love to get back to sleep, but I can't. What's going on? It's this aging process. And furthermore, uh, look what he says. Not only are you up with the chickens, but he's saying, and the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Your voice, it's not as strong as it once was. It starts to waver. I mean, you got vibrato, and you're not even trying to. It just, it just happens. It's just taking over. And furthermore, look what he says, verse 5. As you grow older, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. At one point in your life, you were strong. There was not a whole lot that was intimidating you. Now, I, really, I, I don't really want to handle that. I, I don't want to deal with those things. I, a high place, you know, I don't really want to climb a ladder. Sometimes stairs, when you get older, they even seem daunting. I mean, even a high curb sometimes, like, yeah, I'm not sure I want to negotiate that, right? That's what happens when you get older. There was a day you used to climb to the top of the tree. Remember that? Where you're like, man, I can't wait to ride that roller coaster. And you do it a whole bunch of times. When you get older, those things aren't as appealing. You're like, man, that would be a scene my grandkids would never forget if I did that. And I just think I'm going to take a pass on that. Friends, these all are things that take place when you get older. Uh, look at this. He also says in verse 5, and he says, And the almond tree blossoms. Anybody know what color an almond tree blossom is? It's white. You used to have dark hair? It turns white on you, you know? Maybe it starts as a silver gray, but it just gets nice and white. It's all part of that aging process. And then he says, And the grasshopper drags himself along. See, he's kind of giving this imagery of, of getting older. You know, in the spring... The grasshoppers, they're hopping all over the place. Do you ever see a, in the fall, the grasshopper? They're just kind of limping along, you know, like they're dragging a leg. You know, like, what's happening? It's, you know, summer's over. Instead of a grasshopper, they're like a grass limper, you know? And they're just, they're just barely getting along. He says, friends, your body is going to age. And then here's one that might throw you. And he says, and the caper berry, you see that in verse 5, is ineffective. And, um... Throughout the ancient world, they thought that the caperberry would increase sexual drive. And what he's saying there is, man, you lose your desire. Even the modern-day pharmaceuticals simply can't help. Things just are not working well. And friends, I want you to know, you cannot prevent it. You can't, even though you try not to think about it, 
Your bodies are going to break down. I'd encourage you, you got one body. You want to try to take care of it and do everything you can to keep it healthy. But it is going to break down. And you want to learn to remember God because it's going to get difficult just being in your body. I was reading of a lady who went to the new dentist. And she's sitting there in the waiting room and she sees the diploma, you know, the DDS, the doctor of dental surgery. And she looks at the name and she's like, this is a guy I went to high school with. And that was his name. And she started to remember, like, she could not forget this guy. Like, she was really in love with this tall, handsome, strong uh, guy back in high school and never knew exactly what happened to him. But that's why she remembered the name. And she's like, man. And then, you know, can't be. She walks in to her dental appointment and she meets the dentist. And here's this shriveled up old man, a little bit of gray hair. He's got these huge lines on his face. And she's like, absolutely not. There is no way. That's, that's him because look how old he is. I mean, I'm far younger than he is. There's no way. And so the dentist does his deal, and she just couldn't help herself. And she goes, yeah, I just have to ask. Um, did you happen to go uh, to uh, Park, uh, Morgan Park High School? And he says, well, indeed I did. I am a proud Mustang. And she just goes, and he goes, why, why do you ask? And she goes, well, you know what? You were in my class. And uh, he goes, really? Well, what did you teach? (laughs) And I want you to know, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, right? I mean, we have these wrong perceptions of ourselves. We look in the mirror like, looking good. I'm looking 40 years younger than I thought. I want you to know the aging process takes over, and eventually, look at the end of verse 5. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. One day there is going to be a time where you're going to go to your eternal home, and there'll be mourners in the street. And then he says, you want to do this then. In light of the reality of aging and that you will eventually pass away, Remember him, verse 6, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Remember him before the things that are valuable, they're they're gone, life. You remember how you used to get water from the well? There will be a day where that pitcher will stand empty. And he says, and the wheel at the cistern is crushed and then dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. You see, life apart from God, that's exactly it. It's vanity. It's meaningless. You know, it's Art Link uh, letter who said this once. It's better to be over the hill than under it. You may feel like, oh, man, that describes my life going through some of those things right now. I want you to know that life is a gift. And if you have breath, God wants you to enjoy each day. Make some memories. Enjoy God. There is things for you to learn. There is a reason why you are here. He wants you not only to be a blessing, he wants to experience a blessing. And the only way that you can do that is if you remember God for a lifetime. There is no enjoyment apart from him. And life goes pretty fast. Remember that 2007 song that Kenny Chesney had, if you're into country music? It went to the top of the charts. The song, Don't Blink. 
it's about this interview of this 102-year-old guy on his birthday, and they're, they're interviewing this guy. I'm like, what's the secret of life? And, you know, he's, he responds, the secret of life is don't blink. And then you kind of started tracing it. You know, you're six years old, you take a nap, you wake up, you're 25, your high school sweetheart becomes your wife. And he talks about just kind of growing and all the changes that takes place. And then he said this, trust me, friend, a hundred years goes by faster than you think, so don't blink. Gone. How fast could it go? And if you want joy and purpose in this life, you want to remember God for a lifetime. Remember him when you wake up in the morning. Say good morning to the Lord. You've been sleeping, but he hasn't been. Remember God as you go through the day. Find some time to be in his word. Uh, be involved in a small group. When, there's, when the church is gathering for worship, remember God. Be a part of that experience. Let your voices join the chorus that sings his praises. Listen to some Christian music. Uh, uh, have a time you might listen to a sermon every once in a while. Before you go to bed, say something to God, but remember him if you really want to experience joy and purpose in life. Let me show you something else here. If you want to, if you want to really experience joy and purpose in life, not only remember God for a lifetime, I want you to look at verses 9 and following. You want to grow wise in God's word. Now, some scholars think that verses 9 and following were written uh, by an editor after Solomon finished his uh, work here. But uh, I'm in the persuasion that really Solomon transitions to a third person. And he does so because it's a very simple way of boasting about God's word without coming across as kind of an arrogant person. And so if you really want to experience joy and purpose in life, grow wise in God's word. Look what he says. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. What Solomon did, we know this from 1 Kings 4.32, is that he recorded literally thousands of proverbs. A proverb is an axiomatic way of expressing life. It is to take a timeless truth and to present it in a memorable way. It is an earthly statement about a heavenly reality. And that's what Solomon did. He not only uh, governed people because he was a king, he led them. He wanted them to experience truth. And that is why he wrote these things in the Word. He wanted them to navigate life well. You see, God isn't trying to create a bunch of mystics. He wants people to truly know him and to walk in truth, where there is stability and maturity in their life. And so he says, I wrote these things and I did them in such a way that they would be, look at what he says in verse 10, delightful. He says, the preacher sought to find delightful words, words that are winsome, insightful, just the right words, and to write words of truth correctly. I wanted to write out truth in such a way that you would be able to grasp it. Hence, that's why we have the book of Ecclesiastes. And furthermore, he says this, verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. The words of wise men are like goads. What is a goad? Does anybody know? Yeah, we don't really use it in our vernacular. Let me tell you what a goad is. It's a long stick, and it has like a metal point to it. It was used by shepherds, or like if you're running some oxen, 
uh, he, the shepherd or the guy who was working with these animals, he had a goad. And so to keep the oxen going where you wanted them, if they were getting a little bit off track, you'd take your goad out there and kind of give them that little gentle tap, maybe just a little bit tougher than that. And that would remind the oxen that you were going this way. Or if you were a sheep, okay, and one of those little lambs is like, I want to go this way, you know? And the shepherd's like, no, nah, that's a cliff over there. Take the little goad and... And all of a sudden, the sheep's like, I think I'll go this way, right? And that's how a goad works. And now, I want you to understand that he's saying the Word of God is like a goad. It's very interesting. You see this here in the text? Do you know that Jesus, uh, after the resurrection, he refers to the Word as a goad? Do you remember there's a guy by the name of Saul? Before his name is changed to Paul, Saul is making his way to Damascus because he's going there to kind of gather up a bunch of these crazy people that are believing in Jesus, a part of the way. Of course, that's idiotic, so you've got to what? You've got to incarcerate them and kill off some of them so people don't believe these things. That's what he thinks at this point in his life. And while he's making his way to Damascus, Jesus confronts him. And there is this statement. This is what Jesus says. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to go against me and my word. Why are you resisting? And that's what the Bible is. It's a goad. You know, like it says in Psalm 23, verse 4, your rod and your staff, they what? Comfort me. God's Word keeps you on the path of life. That's where life is good. There is hope. There is life. There is such joy. And he says, and the the masters of these collections. You see that in verse 11? He intends for you to know it because he says they're like well-driven nails. You see, what do you use nails for? Uh, Like, for instance, to bring stability to your tent. Have you ever been camping where you opted not to put in the tent, tent stakes? And the wind blows, and then what happens? There goes your tent. It's blown around the campground. Why? Because you were too lazy to actually stake it in, right? You were just so excited to go camping, you forgot about essential like your tent staying in the campsite. And that's what these nails would do. They would bring stability to life so you're not being whipped around in the wind. That's what God's Word does. But you want to become a master of these collections, that you know these things. A master is someone that owns something, like a master craftsman. And so, he says, you want to grow wise in the word. And I don't want you to miss this. Look at verse 11. These are given by one shepherd. This is one of the noble titles of God in the Old Testament. He is the shepherd of Israel. He shepherds his people. And this is absolutely fascinating. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 23, and 37, 24, when it's talking about the coming Messiah, this eternal son of David, do you know how Ezekiel refers to the Messiah? He refers to him by this title, the one shepherd. The one shepherd. The one shepherd gives us the truth for life. You see, these words become even more powerful when we realize that this one shepherd has become also our Savior. He wants you to walk in joy and purpose in life. That is why He has given you the wisdom of the Word. It is like a goad. If you're off track, it's going to bring you back. But He wants you to walk in His joy. And when we talk about Scripture, 
uh, in theology, we refer to this as inspiration. That God literally moves through human individuals that have recorded his actual word. It's like Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Can God override Solomon and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Paul and John to have his words written down exactly the way he wants them? Absolutely. It's inspiration. And what God does, he uses their human experiences, their vocabulary, their time in life, and yet he moves in such a way that they write down his words. And Solomon says, I get it, and I want you to understand these words are given to us by one shepherd. They are God's words. And you get to know the shepherd by getting to know his word. If you want to know the shepherd, you get to know the shepherd by getting to know his word. His word protects and directs. It renews and revives. It corrects and instructs. This is the power of his word. It is given to us so that we'll experience joy and purpose in life. And if that's going to be true of you and me, we've got to grow in the wisdom of the word. And look what he says in verse 12. For some of you, this was your verse going through college. But beyond this, my son, be warned the writing of many books is endless. An excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Uh, one, this morning, one of our professors told me that he actually reads this to his class. I don't know if that's an encouragement or what. But for some of you, man, this is like, this is how I'm getting through school. Excessive devotion to these books. It's wearing. My body is wasting away here in this dorm room. It's, it's Solomon saying, you know, all the other books are meaningless and unnecessary. Don't enjoy them. No, he's not saying that. I want you to know that books can be insightful. They can be enjoying. They're very informative. What he's saying, though, is don't neglect the book, God's book, the book that gives you wisdom for life. All other books are written for our information. God's book is written for our transformation. It's given to us by one shepherd, so remember God for a lifetime and grow wise in his word. That means that you and I, if you're going to become a master of this collection, you're going to have to have a plan. A plan to daily be in the word. Find something that works for you. Start with just even five minutes in being the word, but God wants you to have joy and purpose in life. It cannot be done apart from him and his word. You want to be like a tree firmly planted uh, by streams of living water and bearing all sorts of fruit? You want stability? You want to be an oak tree in life? You're going to want to become a person of this book. And then we come to this summary statement in verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. It's, here's the summary. It's what he has just been saying. You want to come to a place where you're remembering your creator. You're fearing God. This isn't kind of a cowering fear. This is a fear of reverence, of worship, of duty, of responsibility. It's like, Lord, I love you and I want to obey you. You fear the Lord. It calls you to action. And when you fear the Lord, then you respond correctly to his word. And that's what he says. And to actually keep his commandments. You grow wise in his word. I'll tell you this, if you really don't respect God, you don't revere him, you don't fear him like the text says, you're not going to be in this book. Why? Because you don't take God seriously. So you don't take what he says seriously. 
You might have a Bible, but you're never in it. What God is saying, you want to expand the aperture of your sight and your soul and see God for who he is. And when you see God for immense, almighty, loving, merciful, then you're like, I want to know what he has to say and I want to adhere to it. And do you see this? I don't want you to miss this. Verse 13. He says, this applies to every person. Literally, it is this is the whole of humanity. This is what humans are made for. It is a life-giving orientation to revere and fear God. It is a love-based response to obey his word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you're thinking about like the commandments, like which one? Jesus made it really simple for all those who are following him. He says, let me just kind of put it down. It's like really basic for you. You are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just start here. Because that's what God is seeking to do. He has made himself known. God isn't trying to create a bunch of mystics. You don't have to get into a lotus position. You don't have to hide in a cave. You don't have to have some sort of esoteric experience, some sort of ecstatic event that takes place in your life. That's not necessarily true spirituality. If you want true spirituality, joy and purpose in life, it comes from knowing God, and that cannot be done apart from his word. God wants you to grow in strength, in truth, in a vital, loving relationship with him, And if God's word doesn't have any role in your life, then you're going to settle for some sort of saccharine substitute and get ready. The fallout will be great. Jesus said this, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will what? You'll obey my commandments. If you love me, if you don't love me, then take it or leave it, right? And I want want you to know something. You're going to face some stuff in life that you're going to not know why you're going through it. When you face what you don't know, go back to what you do know. Fear God. Obey his commandments. The second Mrs. Einstein was once asked in an interview, do you understand Mr. Einstein's theory of relativity? And she said, no, I don't understand the theory of relativity, but I understand Professor Einstein, and that is all I need to know. You may not be able to explain everything going on in your life, but you do know God. He'll never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. You just stay with him. And so if you want to grow strong, have a foundation of joy and purpose in life, friends, this is your text. You want to remember God for a lifetime? You want to grow wise in his word? And notice his final statement. Know that God will bring justice. Look at this. He says, for God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Did you know that? Everything. The, the little things that you've done, your homework assignment, the tear of compassion that you shed, that sarcastic comment, that egregious sin, all of just the coolness toward God. Did you know that everything will be judged by God? God is going to bring judgment and justice. You know, for all the injustices in our life, you know the people that just made a wreck of your life and they said things that weren't true and they tried to destroy your character? Do you know all the injustices in our world? Pain, suffering, look at history, look at today. God is going to bring a reckoning. And friends, if you don't recognize and leave justice with God, You're going to miss out on joy and you will miss his purpose for your life because you're always tangled up with, 
I was treated wrong. You know, this verse here, the final verse of Ecclesiastes, in the final analysis, everything matters. Life isn't vanity of vanity, nothing matters. Actually, everything matters. Everything matters. There's a a God in heaven. Every single person is going to appear before him. Everything thought, said, and done is going to be evaluated and judged by the awesome creator of the world and of each person. Everything matters. What you did with your bodies, what you saw, what you did with your hands, whether you invested your life or you wasted it, everything will matter. You see, the final message of the book of Ecclesiastes is this. It's not that nothing matters. It's that everything matters and God is going to judge. You see, this book doesn't end with grace. You know what it ends with? It ends with justice. It tells us you and I are going to be judged by what we did with our life. And I don't know about you, but there is one sorry sinner that is standing up here. I need someone who is going to pay the penalty for all of my sin and all of my transgressions. And this book tells us God is going to bring judgment. And God is so merciful that he gives us a Savior who is judged in our place. What I need is someone that is going to justify me. And that's why Jesus came. Remember Jesus said, John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you want life? Then you want Christ. And he entered into the vanity of life, the meaningless of it, and showed us where meaning is in relationship with him. But far more than that, he entered into judgment where God's just wrath for sin came down upon him and he took it all what a savior. And so, friends, this book really points us to Christ. It's like it says in uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. For he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Is God going to bring judgment? Absolutely. How do we know? There is a resurrected one. Friends, this is is the reality that we celebrate on Easter. You see, the victory of Jesus will save us from the vanity of sin. Life under the sun is fleeting and disappointing until you find life in the sun. And our hearts are never satisfied until they're satisfied in Christ. So if you really want joy and purpose in life, you know what this book tells us? This book, its, its theme is this. Ultimate meaning in life is found when we become sincere worshipers of God. There's a movie called Braveheart, and William Wallace is played by Mel Gibson. And William Wallace makes this statement. He says, Every man dies, but not every man really lives. And I want you to know that is a really biblical assessment to life. Everyone, you're going to die. But not everyone really lives. You know how you live? The best way to live under the sun is to live 
in the Son. And that's why this book is there. So that we will find life and purpose, joy and meaning in God himself. What a book. What a life. What a wise and awesome God we have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an amazing chapter of the Bible. Perhaps it's been overlooked for many years in our lives personally, but we see how to experience joy and purpose in life. And it comes from trusting you, remembering you throughout our life, growing wise in your word, and and knowing that you're going to bring justice and we're going to have to leave it with you, and so we do. For someone who is here today who has never trusted in Christ, some of the things we talked about today describe their life to the full. Would they just turn from their sin and just pray with me and say, Lord, I, this morning I, I did it. I need Christ, I need forgiveness, and I believe I need you to be the shepherd of my life. And so I trust you this morning. And Lord, for all of us, you know our need for you. So help us to remember you, to become masters of this collection called Scripture and to leave justice with you, to live for your glory and in your joy, to experience your purpose and meaning in life. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.